You're listening to What Happened in Baghdad, a brand new podcast exploring some of the inspiring creatives that once called the Iraqi capital home. I'm your host, Kamar Saeed, and in this first episode, I was delighted to be joined by James Montgomery, Professor of Arabic at Cambridge University, Hanouf Al-Alawi, National Outreach Manager at the British Museum, and visual artist Bryony Dunn to discuss the life and work of the Iraqi bibliomaniac, eccentric, and writer Al-Jahil. I began by asking James, who was Al-Jahil? We know very, very little in the way of actual details about um, Al-Jahil's life. But for centuries, uh, he has been the, he's been like a magnet for a number of urban myths or legends. Uh, some of the things that have circulated about him over the centuries uh, is that uh, he was black, that he began life very poor, that he sold fish to support his family. And what we have to remember is that the biographers, when writing biographies, are a bit like nature. They abhor a vacuum. And so they were desperate to fill in the details about al-Jahi's life. And when we start to think like that, we can realize that uh, the idea that Jahiz was black comes from the fact that he wrote a book called The Blacks Boast of Their Superiority Over the Whites. And so it's a natural assumption for a biographer to say that a person who wrote a book like that must himself have been black. But what the biographers failed to realize was that Jahiz also wrote a book called The Whites Boast of Their Superiority Over the Blacks. So the evidence on that one is uh, equiponderant. There's no difference between them. Mm. I have no idea with the idea that uh, Al-Jahid sold the fish to support his family came from. Um, I wonder if there is a possibility that Al-Jahid belonged to a family of uh, merchants who traded in fish. But one way we can find a few things out about Al-Jahid is if we look at his actual name. To give you his name in full, it is Abu Uthman, Amr ibn Bahr, al-Fuqaymi, al-Kinani, al-Basri. And if we divide it all up into little segments, we can actually find out quite a lot. So Abu Uthman, that's uh, what's known in Arabic as a kunya. That's the, the name that you have when you have children. So it means the father of Uthman. So presumably he had a son called Uthman. His given name is Amr. And Ibn Bahr means that he's the son of Bahr. And then you find out that the family belonged to Al-Fuqaymi and Al-Kinani. Now, Fuqaym is a branch of the Kinana tribe. And the Kinana tribe uh, were originally settled uh, around Mecca in what is today Saudi Arabia. And in fact, the tribe of the Prophet Muhammad, the Quraysh, is also a member of the Kinana. Oh, I see. So, so you're suggesting that there might be a kind of connection. Well, I'm to... suggesting that um, uh, Al-Jahiz was, if not a full member of this tribe, at least um, had been incorporated into that uh, tribal alliance. So what do we actually know about his early life, James? Like you said, he's al-Basri, suggesting that he was from Basra, the, the yeah, city. and that, I think, is uh, uncontrovertible. Um, he gets his name al-Jahid, uh, which is a word which means uh, someone whose eyes protrude uh, in their, their head now. I, mm. I imagine that he suffered from exophthalmos, which is a thyroid condition. It sets off the autoimmune 
system uh, added attacks um, the area around the eyes, causing the eyes to protrude. He's only ever really referred to uh, uh, by others as al-Jahid. In his own works, he normally refers to himself as Abu Uthman. Okay. But um, what we can tell from the, the, the description Basri, that he's from Basra, he himself says somewhere that he was roughly as old as uh, a, a fellow poet called Abu Nawaz. That would give his date of birth sometime around 780, give or take. Let me set the scene for you here. Basra is located in modern-day Iraq. It's Iraq's second largest city, and it's home to the country's main and only port. You know, the one that Sindibad the sailors thought to have sailed from. It's noted for its temperatures, which regularly exceed 50 degrees, and probably the best dates and date syrups you'll ever taste. Around the 9th century, when Ajahad was living there, Basra became a thriving hub for established and budding scholars. So all the wealth that's coming back... uh, on the trading ships and everything into Basra meant that uh, the conditions were absolutely ripe for there to emerge a, I wouldn't use the word class, but a group, uh, an echelon society that has the wealth to allow the leisure to allow study. You can't study unless you can afford to. Where does the Jahal sort of fit into all this then, James, in terms of class in terms of, I I guess, background. We know uh, from the list of the people that he studied with that he studied with most of the prominent um, scholars in Basra around about the 800s to 820s. Now, you don't do that if you're poor. Right. You can't do it because you're too busy trying to make ends meet. So in order to have time to attend those classes, you have to have some form of income. My own take on Jaha's early life is that um, we have to look at what we know rather than what we think we know, Mm. and then move backwards from that. And what we get is um, someone who seems to have had the leisure time and the wealth behind it to allow him to throw himself fully into all of these areas of study. So he was really immersed in sort of, I guess, Basra's like intellectual environment um, and he would have been surrounded by a lot of scholars I imagine and yes. but also a lot of I guess people traveling in and out of the city um, so yeah. that's a really interesting environment to actually kind of foster in, in yeah. a scholar. If you are a human being as curious as Al-Jahid seems to have been mm. it, it was like um, being a, a, a child in a candy shop it, it, Everything was sort of on his doorstep at his disposal. One other person that he met who had a huge influence on him was a scientist come theologian called uh, Ibrahim Al-Nadham. And the two of them became very close friends. Sure. Uh, Jahiz was Nadham's disciple, um, although he disagreed with him on a number of points at one point in their life where I think they kind of slightly parted company. But the... Uh, interest that Jahiz shows in observation, empiricism, uh, and um, scientific categories, I think, uh, is something that he owes to this friendship with his older contemporary Nadam. So was he writing at this point, James? Was the Jahiz writing? We don't know. Because apparently, 
he he attracted the attention of of the caliph in Baghdad, which yeah. is what brought him down yes. uh, to there. So, do we know anything about this article that he wrote? So he wrote a number of um, works on the question of the imamate. So, who was qualified to be the imam of the Islamic community? Now, imam then had more senses than it does now. Um, but effectively, it was about the spiritual leadership of the Islamic community. Uh, and the Caliph Ma'mun had a particular interest in that question because the Caliph Ma'mun um, was convinced that he was not only the temporal, but also the spiritual head of the community. And he, Ma'mun learned of these treatises written by Jahiz, we don't know if he read them, someone obviously did, and recommended that Jahiz be um, brought to the caliphal court from Basra, so brought to Baghdad, uh, in order uh, to do what? That's another subject. Um, it's not exactly clear what he did. Is it, is it true that apparently he was attracted to a Jahiz-like prose, his style of writing? There are some later works on the imamate uh, which have survived. We don't know if they're the, exactly the same ones that attracted Ma'amun's attention, uh, but they are very scholarly, they're very dry, they're almost legalistic. There's no witty anecdotes, there's no amusing uh, observations. They are very sort of scholastic and academic in nature. But I think what was, uh, what was attractive to Ma'amun was he was someone who um, could put in writing in a clear and co comprehensible way so that we can still understand them today. Uh, and so I think Ma'mun uh, saw possibly in Al-Jahid the opportunity of having a, uh, a spokesperson, an ideologue, someone who could then turn Ma'mun's own ideas about the caliphate into writing um, uh, and then uh, defend it. Because it wasn't just a question of writing because you, your works were always subject to contestation, to disagreement, to, to uh, attack. Uh, and we know from Jahiz's writings that he was a very, very good debater. Founded in 762 by the Caliph al-Mansur, the Iraqi capital of Baghdad is located along the Tigris River in the fertile heart of ancient Mesopotamia. Shortly after its inception, the city quickly grew into a vibrant and dynamic intellectual, cultural and commercial centre of the world, attracting scholars, poets, merchants from as far away as modern-day Spain. A cosmopolitan city, it saw Muslims, Christians, Persians rub shoulders with one another, particularly in places like Beit al-Hikmah, or House of Wisdom, a kind of library and centre for learning where scholars would often work collaboratively on projects. One of these projects, Hanouf explains, was something called the translation movement. You read a lot about the translation movement when you first start reading into the history of science, into uh, Baghdad in the ninth century. First of all, that translation, even in the beginning at the onset, was a very rigorous scientific process. Uh, Hanin bin Ishaq, who is like the towering figure of translation uh, of Greek and Syriac texts, because he spoke Syriac and Arabic, was very rigorous in his approach to translation. And he was the he was the leader of the. Yeah, yeah he was the right? leader. Yes, yes, sure. yes. He was appointed and by Al Ma'mun uh, to head a group of translators 
to basically translate the Greek uh, um, scientific and philosophical work. And they did actually, within 50 years, manage to translate the work of a Greek, which took a thousand years to produce. And it's just phenomenal that they made all that wealth of knowledge available in a new language, which is Arabic. And that has allowed Arabic to be the language of science. Uh, and this is something that most people would not probably hear about Arabic being the language of science. Yes, Arabic is a language that is normally associated with poetry and poems, but also language of science internationally for um, at least 600 years. So, yes, so, but his process, like I was saying, Hanin was very, very scientifically rigorous. He would consult several Greek texts before doing his translation, and he, it was never a literal translation. Uh, he took the meaning of it. So that's one comment about the translation movement. The other thing as well, it's it was never a linear thing. It was never the transmission of knowledge from Greek, Arabic, and then into Latin, even when it wasn't just from Greek resources, it was from other resources as well. But there were other translation movements that um, other Arabic scientists played a major role in, like, for example, um, Constantine the African, who did the translation of at then Arabic scientific work into Latin in Italy. Am I right in saying, Hanouf, that if it wasn't for the kind of efforts in Baghdad and Beta Hikma at the time, we probably wouldn't have a renaissance in the West? I think so. I'm not a historian myself, but I sure. think from what I've read, because I, I try as much as I can to read everything that is like peer-reviewed journals and things like that, having the scientific training myself, so it allows me to access that information, at least understand it. Mm. So um, yes, and, and basically this, the, the translation movement as it's called, and I'll come to say why it's also problematic to call it translation movement, because it's not really doing justice to the scientific production at that time. So yes, but it played a major role in making that scientific work from Greek and other cultures accessible and available later on in Europe, because they they also played a role in the translation of that work later on from Arabic into Latin. And to give you an example, I think his name was Jared of, of Cremona, again, a figure of translation from Arabic into Latin. When he came across the Arabic work and the richness of it and compared it to the Latin available at that time, he said Latin is so poor in comparison. So yes, it did play a role in making sure that this knowledge not just the knowledge of the Greek, but also of the Arabs, because they added to it, accessible to what we know today as a Western audience. So yes, they did play a role in the scientific renaissance in Europe. But of course, it wasn't just science that really flourished at the time, obviously. And most of these people would have been polymaths, right? I mean, yes, you know, in the West, thing. we just, you know, oh, you see a Renaissance man as a polymath, but people don't recognize that these Arab scientists and, and people of the age that were working there were also kind of, I mean, Abu Nuwas, um, the poet, um, also was really well versed in like other stuff, like scientifically, et cetera. So you would have kind of gotten a really rounded education. And yes. like these people were incredibly smart. The last point I wanted just to mention about the translation movement. And like I said, this is something that doesn't do justice to the scientific work production at that time is actually calling it a translation movement mm. itself because it's not just a translation the materia medica the uh, medical pharmacological knowledge from the greek that was later on um, adapted in arabic and disseminated across the uh, world there's this assumption when you first come across it that this is a translated work 
only recently, like a couple of years ago in 2017, a professor of Arabic Islamic science, um, George Salib, actually examined those existing manuscripts in details Arabic in and compared them. And he compared the text, he compared the images to see are they translations of the original? And what he found, they're not. They are not, he called them tahrir and islah. It's the Arabic translation of that Greek work. And, and a lot of time they're called translated work. And okay. that kind of diminishes the, the efforts of the people who put that work together. And no one has actually looked at them in detail enough. So when this professor came along and he looked at the, uh, and compared those living manuscripts, looked at their images, looked at the text and compared them to the original Greek, he found they're not translations. Parts are, but there is what he called tahrir and aslah. There's redaction and um, rectification, I think is called in English, which is basically that they have made an effort to, to add, change, amend, modify, disagree with the original text. And that's the nature of science. It advances in this way. And uh, calling this effort a translation, is just reduces a lot and diminishes the, sure. the, the efforts of all those important people who contributed to science. So basically, for the inquisitive, 9th century Baghdad was the place to be. But how did the Jahel find his time there? Because Mahmoud was so uh, determined to establish his right to the absolute uh, rulership of, of the community, he set up a thing which was called the mehna. So the word mehna in Arabic means a trial or a test. Uh, some people translate it as the Inquisition because it has overtones of the, the later Spanish Inquisition, uh, but we'll call it the investigation. Now what this was, the Caliph wanted to have all of the scholars, uh, all of the bureaucrats, all of the intellectuals in any position of power to agree on a point of theology. And he determined what that point of theology would be. Uh, and he wanted them to agree to it because it would then become a public affirmation of their acknowledgement that he was the spiritual leader of the community. And I think Al-Jahiz worked for that office that was involved in the investigation, the inquiry into, and also the public declaration uh, of this one tenet of theology. And it's a little bit abstruse, but you get a sense of what's happening uh, in the wider uh, world around Baghdad by thinking about it just briefly. So the Caliph Ma'mun, um, he was very convinced uh, that the Quran was created in time and in history and was not the eternal word of God. Al-Ma'mun reckoned that if the Quran was the eternal word of God, then that would mean that God was not the only eternal being. And therefore, there were two eternal beings, God and the Quran, and that would then represent a challenge to monotheism. Right. So Mahmoud decided that this was going to be the point that um, everyone had to agree to. Now, Jahiz also very firmly agreed that the Quran was created in time, was not the eternal, everla everlasting word of God, because he belonged to a theological school called the Mu'tazila, um, which he was introduced to by this uh, older contemporary Al-Nadham when he was in Basra. And um, 
on the strength of that, I think that uh, Al-Jahid was actually sort of involved in the mechanism, the delivery, the whole process uh, whereby the caliph wanted to have every intellectual in Baghdad agree on this point. And there were many who really violently disagreed. And what would happen to them? Uh, well, the most famous example is that um, a very pious man called Ahmad ibn Hanbal, after whom the Hanbali School of Law, which is one of the four existing schools of law, he was brought before the whole court. He refused to answer the questions when he was um, when the questions were put to him. And the historical record uh, sort of disagrees, but in, in all likelihood, Ibn Hanbal was flogged uh, in public for not agreeing to this. The followers of Ibn Hanbal later said that um, the angel, sort of an angel came down and protected Ibn Hanbal and, and made sure that he wasn't shamed in public. Um, where the big disagreement came was that one side said, yes, he did say that the Quran was created. And the followers, the Hanbalis said, no, he didn't agree. So um, there's no other way uh, of telling. So mm -hmm. it was not, I mean, for me, it's not Jahid's finest moment because he writes about this. Um, and um, at one point he says, you know, I don't know what you're all so upset about. He was only punished with 30 lashes of the whip. Now, only punished with 30 lashes of the whip. That's only. Not a, yeah, that's not, a, that's, that's not a good thing. And we have to acknowledge that the people in the past who act as our heroes, they have mistakes, they have failings, they have um, uh, human foibles. Sometimes they do things that we don't. Uh, like or approve of, um, but what what participation in the delivery of that whole process meant was that it put Al Jahid in contact with the most powerful people in the world at the time. Mm. So not only the caliph, but his vizier, his chief advisor, the chief judge, uh, um, uh, based in Baghdad. So basically, the chief judge of the whole. Islamic Empire, which at the time is more or less stretching from Spain to the River Oxus in modern-day uh, Central Asia. Now, That's huge. He is now in contact with the three most powerful people in the world. And obviously at the time, like, you kind of had to find a patron. Yes. Who was a Jahal's patron? He had many, right? Yes. And it depended on the relationship you had with the particular patron. But you needed a patron... Uh, not only uh, because the patron would then uh, pay you a stipend in order to carry out various works uh, on their behalf or whatever, but it meant you were integrated into a whole network of other people who were connected to that patron. It meant protection for you and your family. It meant security. Um, so the whole patronage network on which um, uh, Abbasid society in Baghdad was based on uh, was based on this um, this notion that by being part of that network, you were then given not only identity, but a place in society. Uh, you could have someone to turn to. For example, if your house burnt down, you could go and ask a patron, you know, possibly to rebuild it for you, possibly to give you a loan uh, or whatever. So Al-Jahid's first patron was, in fact, the second most powerful man 
in the world, the vizier. Imagine that for a first patron. Yeah. Now, Ibn Zayat was not a nice man. Oh, I see. Yeah. I mean, I don't imagine that. Yeah. And, and what had, attracted him to a jihad, James? You know, I, that's a question that I have never been able satisfactorily to explain because I don't think they got on at all particularly well. <laughs> um, but are, he still literally gave him a livelihood. Yes. Do you think it was well, kind of like a reputational thing whereby, oh, I heard a Jahel was, you know, is, is, is he's kind of an up and coming uh, yes. guy yeah. around here. So like, I mean, you are immediately catapulted into the upper strata of society by accepting the patronage of someone like that. So you could go from being an ordinary person to then being someone who is really quite powerful. It's thought that Ajahad wrote a staggering 260 books, and around 70 of them have survived, the most well-known of which is his quite unusual Kitab al-Hayawan, or The Book of Living Things. It's normally translated as The Book of Animals, but then there's a large chapter on fire, which was thought of as being a living thing. So I think it's, it's probably where I'm safer ground that we imagine it as The Book of Living Creatures. In its current form, it's published in seven volumes. It reaches about 2,000 pages. So that makes it easily, I think, the biggest, most ambitious book ever written at that stage in Arabic. It is an absolutely enormous, compendious work. Um, Al-Jahiz set out to provide an inventory of the living world around him. The only thing that he excludes are fish, because he says, I can't watch how fish behave. He purposely excludes fish from his, um, from his inventory of the world around him, because he didn't have access to observation. And observation is a really important uh, uh, part of the book. Uh, so there's an interesting uh, description of an experiment conducted on the outskirts um, uh, of the city, I can't remember whether it's Baghdad or Basra, it doesn't really matter. It's night time, they light a big fire, uh, they surround the fire with nets, uh, and then they catch every insect that comes and take the insects away and try to work out what the insect population of the area is. That's incredible. Um, yeah. Um, there are also some really interesting but kind of crazy experiments uh, like um, what happens if you feed snake venom back to a snake? Uh, and there's a long there's a long description for uh, how you uh, take a, a reed, very very fine reed, hollow reed, and you suck up the snake venom to the point before it gets obviously into your own system, and try and blow it into the nostrils of the snake. So observation experiment. Uh, is a really important part of the work, but so uh, is, for example, verses from the Quran, which deal with the natural world. He, there's so many digressions in this thing, and you know, it, it's all—it's so eclectic as a work. I, I started out at one point with that impression. I, I carried out my own experiment, um, and um, I tried to see if I could work out what the structuring principle behind these 2,000 pages of printed text is. And in the end, the conclusion I came to is that it's all a series basically of lectures. 
So you get the lecture on flies and other flying insects. And then that might lead on to, um, because flies were considered as sort of uh, hasharat, creepy crawlies, you then go on to lizards or whatever. So there's a there's an organization through association, but also each passage is sort of self-contained. But because it's a person speaking, just as um, uh, the way we write is completely different from how we speak, there is a conversational feeling about it that often mis mistakes people into thinking that it's digressive. And what he did was very, very simple. He just imagined this uh, seven-volume work as a series of pamphlets. And I imagine that was dictated as well, was it? I would expect so, yes. And we know that because there's one bit where um, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm resuming work on this book. Um, I've had to abandon it. Um, my copyist couldn't understand what I was saying uh, because I'd had a stroke. Oh, they I see. Couldn't, they, couldn't, they couldn't follow my Arabic and we had to work out a way for them to understand what I was saying because he's, he's been half paralysed. In the end, the book is unfinished. I guess anyone that sets out to produce a, uh, an inventory uh, of the living world is doomed to failure. The skeleton of it of the work is actually quite simple mm. but then into that you really it's like mental gymnastics you just have to keep up <laughs> um you have to keep up with this astonishing intellect that is taking you down all these highways and byways of every conceivable subject and then you're brought back in the end uh, to the points he was making and then you move off again uh, so it's really quite a remarkable uh, feat of authorship. While researching Kitab al-Haywan, I came across a colourful, illustrated 14th century copy found in the Biblioteca Ambrosiana in Milan. I reached out to the Ambrosiana and they kindly gave me access to an illustrated page from the book. And you can see it over on the podcast's Instagram. The manuscript in the Ambrosiana is a fraction of the size of the Haywan. It's not the complete text. It's probably, you know, not even a 15th. It's a very puzzling text. It's kind of enigmatic um, because we don't know what the selections were. This could have been a, a, a manuscript that was designed to act as a, a sample of work to show what the workshop was capable of mm. uh, for other commissions. But the thing that I love about these illustrations is the colour. They're very, very colourful. All colours are represented, but they don't concentrate exclusively on animals. There are eunuchs, there, there's a harem scene. Uh, there is um, one case where Alexander is being crowned as, um, as, as king. There's a case of uh, a governor reading a letter from an Umayyad caliph. I mean, it's really impressive when you look at them. The illustrations really are beautiful and just just really nice to look at. Yeah. Bryony, I, I want to come to you. As an artist, I'm really interested in how you respond to, to the illustrations in the book. I somewhat really want to understand, um, you know, what is being described um, in, with, uh, on the same pages as these illustrations. Um, the artist or, and the writing, they seem to be quite uh, observant. Um, 
like on the page of what, uh, what James uh, passed on page 13, it's these two, they look like dogs and they're like ripping open this, it looks like a deer and all its intestines are coming out. Um, so it's kind of like, it, it, it feels quite scientific as well, this, um, this, this observation. Um, that it's not just purely romanticized and you know there, there is this kind of like poetic to the images as well but it's also it, it feels scientific of that time um it's like how like the translation and language it's it it, it changes once it's passed on from one um translated to the next and I can imagine also um these forms of illustrations are also and like how one illustrator imagines an animal compared to maybe how Elja has actually saw it or even if he saw it in real life maybe it was just a, a kind of a, a a literary description that he he was kind yeah. of that was pans, passed on to him I'm thinking of this um this uh, famous rhinoceros that arrived into um, Portugal by um, King Manuel I and supposedly was the, one of the first rhinos into Europe. And this was, uh, this was the rhinoceros that Durer um, drew, this Albert Durer, the, the German um, drawer but uh, he had never actually seen this rhino in real life so the illustration is just somewhat based on his it's like an imagination of what what possibly this exotic creature looked like um, and it it had a kind of like he drew almost this kind of like pleats of like uh, battle armor and also this uh, unicorn horn that that actually didn't exist in this Indian rhinoceros because it was coming, it was, it was coming from India. But um, so, but because of this drawing, this is what the majority of people thought that the rhinoceros looked like having never saw one in real life. Um, there's like one illustration of a, of a giraffe that is very um, ornately decorated on its back and it's uh, it's legs. I love or, that one. That one's yeah. so cool. It's stunning it, to look at. Yeah, and it, the, it, its legs also have these type of kind of like um, decorative uh, chains and like also around its neck. And I mean, I'm kind of speculating here, but uh, I, I, I don't, think uh giraffes are, are native to iraq and the, the that region i don't so, think they were oh, james <laughs> <laughs> so i'm kind of thinking also like possibly these these animals are kind of um are gifts um and i think a lot of animals were sent as these kind of like diplomatic gifts between um uh different empires around that time and mm. i mean i i think like when you look at the the photos and you look at the illustrations, um, you, you immediately, especially in the time that we're living in, like draw links to climate change and the extinction of species. Um, and I've, I, I just wanted to ask you all about what you think about this kind of connection uh, between climate change and the work itself. From what I understood as well is that... Uh a lot of what's in in this book is um the 
observations of how animals adapt to their environment. Um, some of them, which do, which don't. And like, that's also like an observation of the climate and the environment and how it changes. After many productive years in Baghdad, James tells me that Jahav eventually packed his bags and returned home to Basra, where he's said to have met his unfortunate but fitting death. He's managed to survive the collapse of the death of Azayat and the collapse of his power. Um, I think he tried to hide in Basra, but was brought back to Baghdad before the chief judge. Mm. Chief judge then pardoned him. The chief judge himself had an even worse stroke than Al-Jahid's stroke. In fact, so much so that the texts always refer to him as the man imprisoned inside his body, which wow. is an amazing way of describing what happens to victims of a stroke. When the caliphal court moves up to um, Samarra, Al-Jahid goes with the court, uh, although he's not so much, um, he's not, a, as it were, a power player or a power broker anymore. Uh, he's used uh, on um, sort of caliphal commissions. Write me a book um, about the military virtues of the Turkic peoples, for example. Eventually, he's given leave to uh, return to Basra, where he um, uh, lived out the, the rest of his life. There's a 14th century work. Uh, so again, 700 years or so um, uh, uh, later than Jahan's date of death, it says that he was in the bookshop um, overnight when the shelves collapsed on top of him. He was very frail, um, and uh, that's how he died. Um, that's such that's a famous... One, that's, that's, that's one of the few urban myths that I'm happy to live with because... Um, Just um, makes sense. It makes so much sense. If it, if it didn't happen, then... I'd um, like it to happen. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think, uh, I think he himself would have seen the, the balance, as it were, in dying in such a way. If you look at science today, science is very much uh, European or Western. It's not multicultural at all. And I believe that science can only... Um, be inclusive and great if it's multicultural in the way it was during the um, when uh, with Islamic Arabic science. These are these scientists and contemporary scientists that are like collecting all this data and doing all this research and trying to understand our environment through what these messages that um, these animals and birds and insects can tell us. And, you know, here's this, you know, man, however many years ago, somewhat doing similar <laughs> experiments and activities. And um, I thought that was quite interesting. I wanted to try to devote some of my life to making it possible for more people outside the Arabic-speaking world to know about al-Jahid, because thereby I hoped that such an intriguing and charismatic and amazing individual might act as a sort of catalyst for people to take stock and think, well, he wasn't the only unique individual in his society. A 
A jahav is, undoubtedly, an emblem for Iraqi and Arab excellence. He's the kind of figure I would have loved learning about in school. Here is an Iraqi Muslim who's achieved incredible things, but isn't allowed to shine the way his high-achieving Western counterparts are. Thanks so much for listening through, and special thanks to Laura Brown for producing this episode. Be sure to follow Wib underscore podcast on Instagram to stay up to date with what happened in Baghdad. And stay tuned for the next episode on one of Ajahl's contemporaries and the namesake of a popular street in Baghdad, the Arab-Persian poet Abu Nuwas. Thank you.